Welcome to a new episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast. Good documentation is important, but we don't always put enough focus on it as we should. In this episode, we talk about what makes good documentation and ways to improve your documentation. And to help us with this conversation, who better to have than the people from Open Web Docs team? We have Estelle, Jean-Yves, and Will joining us, and they will share some great insights on how to improve your documentation. Can you all give us a brief introduction of who you are, what you do, and what your favorite happy hour beverage is? Estelle, you want to start? Uh, so I'm Estelle. I am based out in San Francisco, and I started uh, writing web documentation back in 2007 when I started a blog called CSS XHTML and JavaScript Explained. So I documented the open web and then other resources came out and did a much better job and I have way more people. Um, so I joined in on other people's documentation instead of keeping my own blog that is woefully outdated and actually now offline. I'm based in San Francisco. Uh, my name is Will Bamberg. I live in Vancouver, BC. And I work for Open Web Docs uh, as a technical writer and something we sometimes call a documentation engineer, which I guess is supposed to include the I, the fact that not everything we do is writing prose or even writing code samples. We do stuff that's about building and maintaining documentation infrastructure and documentation systems. So that's what I do. And I work full-time for Open Web Docs. And I'm Jean-Yves Perrier. I'm based in Switzerland in a small town not too far from the Matterhorn. I can't see the Matterhorn from here. And uh, I was a C++ developer for 15 years. And around 2009, I switched to start writing documentation because I liked websites. And it was a time where HTML5 was becoming something. So I started writing about HTML5 elements and a few years later, after being a volunteer for a few years on MDN, it started to be my job. And now for 15 years, I'm a technical writer, mostly on MDN, but also I'm a, a member of uh, Open Web Docs. Right on. And it is Jem and myself on the panelist side. Jem, you want to give intro? Jem uh, Young, engineering manager at Netflix. I'm your host, Ryan Burgess. In each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we like to choose a keyword that if it's mentioned at all in the episode, we'll all take a drink. What did we decide today's keyword is? Mozilla. Mozilla. So yeah, I'm pretty sure it will come up at some point or another. Uh, before we dive into the episode, I also want to say thank you to all of our amazing listeners out there. Over the years, you've all listened and chimed in and let us know what's working, what's not. So we're asking you again, we'd like to run a bit of a survey. It takes two minutes to fill out just to help us know what's working, what's not, what we can do better for next year. If you want to visit frontendhappyhour.com slash survey, Take two minutes, please fill it out for us. Let us know how we're doing. That would be really helpful. Let's dive into the episode. I'm curious from all of you, what do you see makes good documentation? How would you describe good documentation? There, there are many things that define good documentation, but I think the most important point is accuracy. Uh, documentation has to be correct. If it is incorrect, it won't be good documentation. That's the first one. Uh, of course, completion or completed is important, but less than accuracy. It's better to have missing docs than wrong docs. I completely agree with Jean-Yves, and I would also like, so once you have the correct information, it needs to be written in a way that people can understand. So I like to ensure that the documentation I write explains the words that people might not understand or links to them. Uh, so when I write, when we write, it 
there's tons and tons of links to outside resources. So if you don't understand a word, either define it in the page or outside the page. And we write mostly for MDN. And we have to realize that this is an international audience that are not necessarily native English speakers. And not only that, but it's web developers who have have been 20 years in the industry and it's web developers who are developing their first HTML web page. So they might be eight years old. They might be 75. Um, So just basically ensuring that the content is expressed in a simplified manner without being condescending uh, using examples that are very inclusive. So yes, it definitely has to be accurate. If you don't have accurate information, then there's no point making it usable uh but it has to be readable and understandable and people have to see themselves in the examples it can't all be uh you know u.s basketball teams or something like that i mean i think um that all that of course for sure i i also i i, I would answer the question by saying that it, it it helps it helps the user to to do what they came here to do or what they want to do next. And it helps them understand the thing they understand to get them forward with it. Um, so I always think that like when I'm, when I'm thinking about h- how we should document something or how we should describe something, we should always think about what does the user want to accomplish? How do they, how do they get here? And what are the questions they have to answer? What are the things they need? What, what's, what's the most helpful thing we can do for them in this kind of moment we have where they're looking at our stuff, right? Um, and I, I, for, for, for me, that helps to kind of sharpen sharpen our focus of you know what should we do, what what choices should we make here, you know. Um, so I mean, you know, I mean, correctness is obviously critical, but correctness isn't always helpful. And if you explain something in a way that's correct, but is not something your audience has a hope of understanding, you're not being helpful, and they're not going to um, accomplish the thing they want. So things like you know understanding, you know, what what can we what can we expect people already know? What's the kind of baseline, the ground we can build on top of, right? And and, and what's the best place to put that, uh, depending on which bit of the docs we're in? You know, sometimes we're 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 expecting people to be beginners, and sometimes we're expecting people to be experts, and you know, having a having an understanding of that. You know, so I think a lot of a lot of good docs is based on a kind of empathy, really, of, of like understanding where people are coming from, and you know, so yeah that yeah maybe to build off your empathy point i really like that call out because you're you know i think all of you touched on that thinking about age thinking about languages thinking about just solid examples for people to understand i also recognize even sometimes searchable like i I like to be able to quickly be able to search through documentation because i might be coming to that brand new and not really understand where how the documentation's laid out and so that can be really helpful just having that consistent pattern of search um and then for for me, a big one is clear, concise, like really having that clarity. It just drives me nuts when I have to read pages and pages and pages just to do something simple. Those things always come to mind when I'm like evaluating documentation. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we, we, we talk quite often in, in our web docs about this, this, this documentation system, which I think it used to be called Divio and now it's called Diataxis. Is that correct? And they changed the name. And I can't remember the name of the person who, who, who kind of codified this. Uh, but it's one of these things that when someone says it, if you if you're if you're like a professional writer and you come across this thing for the first time, you're like, "This is such a good idea that why didn't I think of this before?" Or even like, "I already knew this, only I just never saw it written down in this way." You know, those kinds of ideas that that that, that I think are so 
so good, really, you know. And and one of the and and the idea of this system is that you you can divide documentation into different quadrants depending on what mostly really on what kind of what the user is trying to accomplish, what phase they're in of their of their kind of journey. And you say, you know, if people who are who are learning about something and, and they need a different kind of documentation when people are actually doing something. And the documentation you write has to have different kinds of qualities. And I think this is a, a, a super powerful um, principle for organizing a doc system. It's like like you say, you know, like like you know, sometimes you need to look something up, you need a reference, and then you just need to be able to find it quickly, right? And and you, what what I need now is the details, but I, I already have the kind of conceptual understanding of it, right? I know where these details are going to fit in. Sometimes I don't have that conceptual framework at all, and so I need to be I need to be taught, right? And so for that, I need a way of of kind of leading me through something, right? And they're very different kinds of docs, and I think being explicit about that is super helpful when you're when you're trying to. Um, well, trying to design and build a doc system. I just want to briefly say what the Divio thing is, because I think for the listeners today, that might be really helpful. It's uh, at Divio, D-I-V-I-O dot com. And it basically explains, uh, it's a documentation system divided into four components, tutorials, how-to guides, explanation, and reference, uh, where tutorials are learning-oriented, how-to guides are basically, here's a problem, and this is how you can fix that problem or address that problem. Um, reference is kind of like the MDN API pages, tons of, we, you know, there's tons of reference documentation on MDN. Um, and then the explanation is understanding oriented. So uh, basically they put it on a quadrant where it's basically practical steps versus theoretical steps. And most when most useful when you're learning versus most useful when you're implementing. I think this is very important to divide this in these different categories because people learn stuff in different ways. Different people have different uh, way of learning. Some people uh, need to be very practical and how to's guide will be the place they will enter and start learning because they want to do a specific task. Sometimes they need a specific task, but sometimes they, they are very practical. Some other people want to understand how things work, having a good overview of how it works before to start uh, going in. And this is where they need guide. Of course, when you are working and you are already used, it will be more the reference part that will, will be used because you already know how it works, but you need to refresh some details and check a parameter, a value that you have forgotten, even if you know that it exists. So, so this system is really, really interesting because it forces you not to forget any kind of learner or the way the learner, because you, you always say, okay, what will be the how-tos? What will be the, uh, the guides? What will be the reference? And so on. And this is a way that helps people not to forget any of their users. Yeah, I like uh, every new project that has a first, get started. How do you get started? Because that's me. I want to dive in. I want to play around. And that'll come back probably to the docs. Uh, and then the reference for when I'm getting getting more up and running and I don't need a lot of hand-holding on this one. to be like, what does this API do? What are the parameters? Uh, then what I really like is our examples, like real code examples, because people often describe, hey, this this function uh, takes these these parameters, but like seeing code is a lot faster than me trying to like decipher how someone describes code, and that's the common language we all have. I don't know; it's underrated topic uh, documentation. I, I'm curious, 
you all have mentioned Open Web, web Docs a few times now. What is that? <laughs> it's, it's a little hard to explain. Open Web Docs is an open collective. Um, and so we're uh, an organization that um, we convince people to give us money, which we use to pay our salaries, uh, which we, and then we spend our time working on web documentation, working on open source web documentation. I guess that's the, the simplest way I can think of of putting it. So there are uh, four and a half staff members in Open Web Docs, and uh, we spend we spend all of our time working on web documentation in some form or another, and that work is funded by um, by donations from uh, corporations and individuals. And so if you'd like have, to donate, in terms of our, you, you anyone can donate. It's great, <laughs> and so I mean, in terms of our kind of like governance, we have a, a, a we have a steering committee, which includes um, uh, people from um, some of the people from the organization that donate to us, and also other organizations that have an interest in web documentation, like the W three C are represented there, um, and and companies like Google and Microsoft and Egalia are represented there. Um, and we have a kind of invited kind of expert people who, who are represented there and they all kind of help us decide on what kinds of projects we should take on as so we have a kind of process for, for figuring out what we should work on next. Um, and we propose things and they propose things and anyone actually can propose projects that we work on and we, we kind of decide which, which ones are the highest priority for us to work on next. We've also been funded, uh, we got a grant from uh, the German government, SDF. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, Will? If you don't mind, Estelle, I'm happy to, yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, so I guess the the the, yeah, the German government started this program called uh, the Sovereign Tech Fund, STF, um, which I think is, is, is a, an interesting uh, move on their part because I think it, 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 it's an acknowledgement that like, open source uh, software and open source um in general, like generates a lot of value for a lot of organizations, but it's it doesn't often doesn't get the funding that it needs. It doesn't get a sustainable level of funding, right? And so the sustainability of open source, this kind of ongoing issue, I think, in, in the world really. And so the SDF is this is this effort to say, well, then you know, governments can play a role in helping open source be sustainable. And that's exactly what the the, the sovereign tech fund is for. So we applied to the to the sovereign tech fund for funding for Open Web Docs, um, and our proposal was primarily about um, compatibility data. It was mostly about compatibility data, anyway. So one of the things we look after, or help look after, um, is the is the browser compat data repository, um, which is this <laughs> basically huge pile of JSON files that describe the browser support for. 10,000 web platform features, I think, or 20,000? 15,000. 15, okay, thousands of them, lots anyway. And so it, so it describes which browsers support uh, web platform features at a, at a pretty fine-grained level. And so uh, this data get, is used to power, in particular, um, pages on MDN and also can I use, and I think it's it's used in some other contexts as well, like, like developer tools and code editors and stuff to show you what browsers support. Um, Web platform features, um, and so that's a, a significant part of what we do um, is, is is look after that. And part of the uh, the STF project is about um, making it easier for us to maintain this data because there's a lot of it, and maintenance maintenance of it is a is a, is a big 
big issue, you know, and, and, and browsers make new releases and they add support for things. And then we have to figure out, okay, what's changed, you know, and we have to go update all this JSON. And uh, one of the things we've been working on, actually, Jean-Yves in particular has been working on is, is tooling to help automate this and help figure out like when Chrome releases something, what's changed and what does that mean for Compat? And can we like, like generate pull requests to update all the JSON in a more or less automated fashion? You can talk about that, Jean-Yves. If you want to, I guess you know more about this than I do, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, so, so uh, browsers release new new versions, so Edge, Chrome, uh, Firefox, every few weeks. So basically, there is four four to six new version each month. And uh, what we, we we are trying to achieve now is to be able to test most web features automatically each week or after each new beta, and that's. That is telling us, okay, this this is new in Chrome 120. This is new in uh, Firefox 108. This is new in Edge, and so on, so that people can then document this, but also that the data, uh, the pile of JSON, have the right information. Uh, we are trying to to have this as much automated as possible. Uh, and currently, we cover 82% of our 15,000 uh, features uh, with automated tests. So when there is a new uh, property, for example, for CSS, it will detect the new property because it reads on W3C, the spec, that lists all the potential new properties and tests if this property does exist. Some features are more complex because it means, oh, this is only available in secure context, or this is... a very strange changes that uh, didn't happen before. And we still have to do some manual tests or more precisely, we rely also on developers, the developer of the different browser telling what they have added so that we can double check. There is also non-standard properties that will not come from W3C, so we have to add these. And all this together, we are trying it's to, to save as much time so that every week or every two weeks, uh, the browser compatibility data is again up to date because if all has to be done manually, you need five, 10 people just to do this because there is so many change each week. Just to go back, Will said that he was a documentation engineer and that's basically, it's, it's a really good example. It's not just about writing documentation because writing content has to be done by humans. Uh, we've seen AI do it, and we know what happens when AI does it, because um, being accurate is what Jean-Yves said was the most important thing. Uh, but uh, being a documentation engineer enables it to be partially automated so that our documentation can be as close to complete as possible when we don't have time to actually manually address every single uh, piece of content. I, I'm glad that you all kind of brought up the automation part of it. And I love the way that you're approaching it. And it's more like signals that something's changed and getting that input and insights into it. Uh, but then, you know, part of me wanted to ask you all about like AI and documentation and like people are always going to try and automate anything that they can do to, you know, move faster. I would love to hear your thoughts more on like automating the actual content writing. I think our content is what AI should be reading rather than being produced by AI. Because for example, there's a question, there's a, there's a screenshot of an AI that says, um, how do you uh, sort uh, 
an array. And so that seems like it's a really quick answer, but a human would respond, what type of data are you, do you want to sort? The AI doesn't think to ask that question. So it just gives you an answer of how to sort one type of array and doesn't inform you that there's many, there's different ways to sort depending on what type of array you want to, what type of data you want to sort. And therefore the answer while correct for that data type that it produced is not complete because it's not addressing the fact that you don't just use only one sort function. There's many, you know, depending on what you want to sort, you will do it differently. Well, I mean, I think I think for um, for reference documentation, there's a lot of scope for automation, but I don't really think it's like AI based automation. But I think you can you can like, for instance, you know, we have, um, you know, like like uh, like uh, uh, web APIs are the source of truth. Web APIs is, is the specs and the, the, the source of truth really in there is the IDL, right? That describes like the canonical answer to, you know, how many parameters does this function take and which ones are optional and what types are they is the IDL, right? And I think there's a, there's a, a lot of scope for being able to um, automate the, um, at least the skeleton, the framework for reference documentation from sources like the IDL. Um, and I think that's the thing we could, we could use a lot more. And that, that, that gives you the benefit of consistency um, which I think is a, is, a, is a big part of making reference documentation usable is that, you know, things are always described in the same way and you always find the same thing in the same places and you can rely on that always being there, right? Um, so I think there's a lot of scope for that. Um, I think other sorts of documentation like tutorials and guides, I mean, there's a lot of work that goes into understanding how to organize that kind of content and how to structure it in a way that is going to is going to work for people and the order in which you introduce things in a way that's going to build up their knowledge. And I think that's pretty hard to automate. Another difficulty with AI and the kind of documentation we write is we often write things or text around or explanation about new APIs. So the question is, how do you train the AI to know uh, something that is new? Of course, there is a spec, but the spec has a very specific language and uh, recent spec doesn't really explain what they are trying to do. They say how a browser has to implement it with step, steps. That if you look at the JavaScript uh, specification, it will not tell you what the split method is intended to do. There is no text. There is just, you take this, this string, you find this entry, you copy this part there, and you do this. But it doesn't say what the split or what uh, the splice method is doing. Uh, so it's, it's very difficult. If it is an old thing like some part of JavaScript, there is plenty of other explanation on the web, and there AI may be able to find the right one. But when it is a new web API that's have many one blog post somewhere or two. It's the first time that a, docu a complete documentation aimed at user, aimed at web developer is written. And this makes things more difficult. I make a test at the beginning of this year, trying to, to have AI writing a, a reference page for me. And then I read and I say, oh, it looks good. And then, oh, this is strange because speak about this parameter, but there is not this parameter because he found somebody speaking about a function or a method that was very similar, but with different parameters. And 
AI maybe in the future will be able to understand or uh, to understand the, the, what what a method is, what a parameter is. But for the moment, the ones that I tried are very confused with this and just look with something similar that is documented elsewhere. So that's that's very difficult. But maybe in the future, I don't know. But for the moment, it's still a bit early. Well, I think it can it can give you like a first draft, maybe right. You say, okay, I want to I want to start somewhere instead of starting with a blank page. So give me a thing, and it'll give me a thing, and it's like, okay, I'm going to fix all the ways it's wrong now, and and, and so that 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 may be a, a use that that makes sense. But that's an input to the writing process rather than you know a replacement for it to me. Yeah, I mean, the AI cannot come up with the actual content that we need to produce because one, we're writing about new features that aren't well documented. But the problem with it is. If you know, if we're trying to document something that has a function name, right? It's a method in a spec, and the AI finds a Stack Overflow function that had the same name 16 years ago. That's not going to produce the result that you want. Um, and so, as I just explained to my partner the other day, the problem with AI is the AI is only as good as the data you that it it reads. So we at open web docs need to write fully completely accurate information because we actually do write the documentation that will hopefully be used by you know uh, whatever the github uh, ai is that's helping you write code i'm hoping they're using accurate information and not my blog post that is still archived on a weird site from 2007 which is completely outdated and luckily not findable that easily anymore but ChatGPT has probably read that blog, uh, but they have not yet read the post. Uh, like, I just wrote an article or a guide on how the browser handles errors. Really boring, but important stuff. But the stuff written in in uh, in my blog in two thousand and seven is probably not as good as the thing that hasn't been read yet. The problem with AI is if it learns off of mistakes, then people copy that mistake and then it reads that new article that has that mistake in it and then it just um, snowballs. And that's the truth, even though the truth, the underlying truth is uh, QAnon. Or even things that aren't mistakes. I mean, I think one thing about, especially a resource like MDN, which is used by so many people, is that what MDN says, it doesn't just reflect the world, but it can change the world, right? So for instance, when we, this happened a few years ago and all the code samples used to use VAR, right? Because for a long time, that was that was the only way you had cross-browser support was to use VAR in your JavaScript, you know? And there was a, there was a, there was a debate within, within, uh, within, within the MDN team about, you know, should we, should we start, should we stop talking about VAR? Should we say, use constant let all our code samples for that? You know, and, and, and some people said, well, you know, we shouldn't do it yet because there's still a lot of people who are, who are, who are using, you know, these old things, but there's a sense in which, you know, MDN should lead instead of following here, right? Instead of instead of saying we'll wait to update constant until everybody else is using constant, so we should we should be the you know we should make this change happen by promoting this stuff, right? And so that's that's what we did, you know. So I think you know MDN docs, you know, it should it shouldn't just reflect the world, right? It should shape the world, I think. And the same thing, like right now I'm working on a thing to <laughs> basically go through all of MDN and find all the places that we're, we're using XML HTTP request and, and, and use fetch instead and just promote fetch as like, this is the modern way you should do this now, right? You know, and so the reason we're doing this is that we want, we want to, 
you know, we, we, we want we want people to be using these new APIs. They're going to be more powerful. They're not even new anymore, but, you know, these APIs are going to work better for them and be more powerful. So, yeah, that's a kind of editorial decision, I think. It's not just a kind of um, valueless reflection, I suppose, right? The way we write is with uh, best practices in mind. And while there is a framework that says, you know, best practices don't work, um, you need to teach people the best practices. And then you can, once you learn the best practices, you can choose your own your own preferred best practices, but it's really important that we ensure that the content we're producing is, uh, I'd like to say that we read the specs so that other developers don't have to, but we have to be as accurate uh, and in provide information to developers, you know, as to how this is going to impact uh, performance and accessibility, because in the specification, they are supposed to make everything accessible, but how it's, but, you know, to really mess things up takes a developer. I used to say to really mess things up takes a computer, but uh, so we have to be a, like a, a royal source of, source of truth because AI in the future might be re will likely be reading our documentation and we don't just want to provide like this is the way the API is used, but this is the side effect of the APIs. And, you know, there's a CLSA section. So if something is a reference, it has a link to a how to a tutorial and explanation, or also a similar API, which you might think like, you, we know you came here looking and you did a search for this method, but this might not be the actual method that you'd want to use, such as if we were doing uh, an HTTP request on that page, you'd link to fetch, because that is probably what you should be using for for many things. It's interesting you like hearing you all talk who are experts at, at documentation. It's more like your editors and creators at the same time, because you have to take, you know, some, some engineers really head down and writing a, a formal RFC you have to turn that into something that's understandable by specific audiences. And those audiences can vary. Sometimes it's someone who's like, I've never heard of an array. Tell me what that is. And it's someone like, I know everything there is to know about array. Tell me about the new stuff. That to me seems like something that you always need a human filter for because an AI is just going to take all this information and, and dump it. Um, but you all have years of experience actually writing code and understand like, what are people looking for in this specific moment? So it, and I like you said about like you're essentially coding the future AI because they're going to be trained against the documentation you write. So I don't know. That's a really powerful idea and probably something underappreciated in terms of like how things work. I think one thing we haven't touched upon is basically like the template of the page. So another thing we also do is um, make sure that, you know, every page is kind of like, here's a one sentence definition of what this feature is. And that's actually going to be like used in VS code. Um, and then we have a formal syntax section. We have a browser compatibility section. We have a specification section. We have a CLSA section, uh, formal syntax, description, accessibility. Uh, not The accessibility is not on all pages and neither is the security and the privacy implications. But these are sections that aren't necessarily or not at all written in the spec in that format. But because we write it in a very specific way, one, we know that we include all the data that we need to include, but the reader can find what they're looking for. Um, and the developer can know, like, can be like, okay, this is my first time going to this page. I just need to know what it does. 
but when they're debugging something, there's more information below the fold, you know, the imaginary fold, that's like, well, this quirk might be happening because of this, and this quirk might be happening because of that. And browsers haven't implemented these features and don't know to talk about these. AI hasn't implemented these features and doesn't have the experience of uh, really messing things up and figuring out the solution. So the, the other good thing about us is it's an open source project. So when people come and read our documentation and they're an expert in this tiny little niche, they're like, hey, you missed this. So it's not like it wasn't accurate. It was more like we didn't even know to think about this obscure interaction with this other feature. Uh, so people are always editing our documentation, providing really good anecdotes or examples or bugs or, or you know, just changing something from will to might might be really important. I also love that you called out like the open source part of it. I think that documentation is so helpful all the time. If someone's reading it, catches a spelling mistake or just something that could have been worded better, is like it's always great to encourage like the people even reading it to be able to contribute. I, I always find that helpful. Before we end the episode, I want to hear from uh, all of you too, since you are the experts on this. Is you can't write all the documentation. I it would be great if you could, but there's a lot of open source projects. There's a lot of documentation out there. Like, what advice would you give someone for writing their own documentation that would help? Help improve it. I, I will give two two advices. Uh, the first one is call for help from your users. Uh, you can create part of the documentation with a good structure, and then if it is open, people can already do pull requests or write issues and so on. And you will learn from them, and you will find that people who love your product may be ready to uh, to spend some time writing. Of course, you will need to review and so on. So, so that's the first advice. Open the documentation. The second is, is more technical, is don't write and forget. It's not because one document is written that it will stay perfect for years. That's the problem with most blogs. You have blogs from 2007. It's outdated now. And when you are writing a reference or guide, tutorial, and so on for your product, you need this to stay accurate. And for this, you will need, uh, if you have a team, you will need some time of the team to, to work on not the technical debt, but the documentation debt. Because sometimes you will discover, okay, this structure of page is not good, and you have to go back and update the whole shebang of pages that you may have. On large product, it's, it's very difficult. On small product, it can be easier. But this is something always to keep in mind that your documentation is not set in stone and has to be improved over time. I would say to use simple language that it's really important that you're teaching and providing information about the topic rather than showing off what your knowledge base is. Because if you're showing off your knowledge base, if you're just showing off your knowledge base, you're not teaching anyone much you're just showing off so actually um, simplify it down without being condescending um, providing links to other resources where if someone doesn't understand something they can find out more about it um, and then also don't write documentation if you don't have the time so it's better to not have documentation than inaccurate documentation as to bring it all the way back to Jean-Yves um, if you're 
if you know if you have a framework and you write the documentation when you first release it and you're on version seven and your documentation is still reflective of version one, uh, that's probably more detrimental uh, than than helpful. And then also don't reinvent the wheel. If there's excellent documentation about Vue on the Vue website, contribute to the Vue website. Don't replicate this, you know, like you can write about this neat little feature, but plug their website. Like don't, try, you're one person, you can't replicate the world, write a nice blog post and send everyone else, send everyone away to the, to where they can learn more about it. So this might sound a bit cynical, but speaking as a, as a professional writer, uh, the first thing I'd say is is to have good documentation is to pay for it. Um, you know, employ people who who are professionals, who 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 are professional writers, professional professional documentarians, to help look after it. And don't think it's a thing you're going to get for free um, if you want something good. Um, but I think beyond that, I think. Uh, and this also is, is essentially what Jean-Yves said. But I mean, I mean, know, 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 know your audience, know your users, understand what they come there for, and how you can help them. Um, do user testing, um, you know, and, and and talk to them about what they want. I mean, we don't do enough user testing. Um, MDN doesn't do enough user testing. The, the few times I've done it, the, the amount of value you get out of it is just enormous compared to the the investment you put into it and the, the difference in quality you get from, like talking to your users in a kind of fairly structured, semi-formal way and trying to understand where they where they just can't accomplish things using your documentation. I mean, it's, as well as being horrifying, watching people struggle with the things you've built, it's incredibly valuable. So that, I think. I'd like to add one more thing to hire documentarians. So if you have someone who's writing your documentation, who's a skilled at documentation, then they can actually help correct your your actual app it's you know it's it's a give and take um so hiring someone to do this job that knows how to do it is not only provides you with excellent documentation but improves your product so definitely don't skim yeah, it turns into qa um, at some point right yeah, yeah. That's a great point. I like that thinking of like that you're there's a good reason you're paying for this um, and people do have that skill set and it, it can really leverage it. Well, I just want to thank you all for joining us. This is super informative, even for like even something that Gem and I care about documentation. It's like even just hearing the thoughts that you all provide is super helpful. Where if people want to get in touch with you, where can they get in touch with you online? If uh, people want to support Open Web Docs, it's openwebdocs.org. And there's a little donate button in the right-hand corner. And uh, Open Web Docs and myself personally, Estelle at, so it's Open Web Docs at and Estelle at, is a front-end social, front-end dash, dash social on um, on Mastodon. And you too? It's front-end dot social. I, I don't know. On GitHub, I guess. I'm not, I'm not really on any of the socials, so, you know. What's your GitHub username? I'm W. Bamberg on GitHub. And I mean, all of us really live on GitHub because that's where MDN all exists. So that's where we spend all our time. Can I show off a bit? I'm Estelle on GitHub. That's a nice flex, Estelle. I like that. But we also have like, we're the open web docs organization on GitHub too. So, so I, I also live on, on GitHub, uh, TOD 2003. Uh, and I have a Mastodon also uh, entry, which is TOD 2003 at mammoth.fr. 
Right on. Well, thank you all for listening to our episode today. You can find us on Twitter at FrontendHH, FrontendHappyHour.com. Really subscribe to whatever we listen to podcasts on these days. Any last words? Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thank you. you. That's great.